well, I'm not even sure reindustrialization is is really understood at the institutional level of the UK. At least in the United States, I think there's an acceptance that some of the economic consensus was sort of desperately wrong or misguided, right? In the UK, I don't think there's been any real sort of uh, stock taking or acknowledgement of that. Rian, welcome to Not the BBC. Hi, Seb. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. I'm really looking forward to to this conversation. I suppose to to sort of to frame it, um, clearly we're at a pretty critical time, um, both at the at the national level within the context of Western nations, right? In turn, we've seen huge amount of upheaval, the um, populist revolutions of the last, you know, the last decade. And this kind of ties in with some shit, you know, broad shifts going on globally. And um, one of them is a sort of renewed tensions with China uh, and, and Russia. And so this is bringing into question the global order, the US unipolar order, which clearly has um, been, you know, synonymous with globalization, with the deindustrialization of the West. So kind of looking at certain parts of the financial sector and, and suggestions that a regime shift might be happening there, looking at the way that some of um, the way that there's up, upheaval and certain signs of circulating elites within within the West definitely seems like um, we might be we might be moving away from from the neoliberal neoliberal globalized order. Um, and so I wanted to get you on to discuss that as someone who, who has looked a fair bit into to reindustrialization and specifically reindustrialization in the UK context. So I suppose to, to start off, do you want to just explain a little bit about the, the work you do and, and the sort of, I suppose, the remit of your, of your research and your interest? Yeah, sure, I'd uh, be happy to. So I'm an analyst for Bismarck Analysis, which is a, a political uh, risk firm uh, based out in San Francisco. Uh, so I work with my boss, uh, Samo Boyer, who uh, will be known to some people on Twitter. And essentially, we are looking at uh, industries, uh, major institutions, and uh, important individuals, and trying to uh, understand and analyze their impact on the world. And the framework from which we're analyzing them is something called Great Founder Theory, which was uh, developed by my uh, boss, Samo, uh, which uh, essentially uh, sees history as a collection of institutions that are founded by great individuals who have uh, you know an exceptional capacity to build you know great teams and great you know cultural frameworks and then it's about analyzing how those institutions succeed how they develop and uh, eventually how they die uh, i think the way that bismarck analysis sees the world is there's never really been a, uh, an immortal civilization and then it sort of uh, poses the question, is it possible to, to engineer one? Uh, besides that, my background is in market research, uh, focusing on uh, artificial intelligence, semiconductors, robotics, telecommunications, uh, in which I sort of advised a, a mixture of startups generally focused on the robotic space, uh, as well as much bigger players and companies that were investing into these sort of very nascent technology areas. And besides that, today I do a lot of uh, research of my own, mainly see focusing on very similar topics and questions, but in the British context. Uh, and that can all be found uh, on my Substack at Dr. Sin. Perfect. So, yeah, to start off in the in the more global context, what's your take on, um, you know, one of the pop, uh, you know, pop me pop alternative media faces that's going around a lot is Peter Zahan, you know, he talks a lot about um, reindustrialization. So that's sort of kind of popularized it. But, you know, I've also seen um, certain Silicon Valley VCs kind of talk about the people like um, David Sachs, the guys at the All In podcast, who I would, my sense is that given how close they are to, to Elon Musk, they sort of speak for some, um, some relatively influential faction of, um, of, U, of, of, the, of US business. Um, and they seem to kind of when they're talking about it, they see it somewhat as, in, as somewhat implicit that um, that we are gonna that we are gonna see some industrialization. So I guess just off the bat, what's your what's your take on the general on this general question and whether the next um, next decade and beyond um, we can expect to see some you know the reshoring of industry into into Western economies? Yeah, sure. So I think it's worth just 
standing back and thinking about the initial phase of deindustrialization, uh, because it varied a lot depending on the geography. Uh, if we like think about the rise of China and the deflationary effect that had on global industry, uh, that kept prices for many basic goods down uh, while massively increasing uh, China's industrial base. Uh, now, the United States did lose a very large number uh, of jobs and factories. Um, up to about 30,000 factories were shut down directly related to the China shock. And this did have a very notable impact on manufacturing output as a whole and as percentage of American GDP. Mm. Uh, at the same time, in Europe, the deindustrialization was generally on a much smaller scale, uh, in large part because European countries were uh, quite a bit more protectionist, uh, implicitly anyway, uh, and uh, protected their jobs, uh, at least in the case of Germany and Sweden while managing to export a lot of high-value machinery to China. For the UK, uh, it was actually more intense uh, than mm. the United States, the, the deindustrialization. Uh, something close to about 50% of British manufacturing jobs were lost uh, throughout the 2000s. And uh, so you there was just, actually... Just quickly, on the um, you're putting on the, the 2000s, so... How do we kind of scale the deindustrialization if we think back to, to Thatcher, just to get a sort of broader perspective on that? Well, I think that's interesting that we often think of deindustrialization in the UK as something associated with Thatcherism. Mm. But uh, in fact, uh, the real loss of jobs really occurs during the 1990s and 2000s and really sort of uh, climaxes uh, at the onset of the great financial crisis. So uh, even during the 1990s, uh, British firms like GKN and uh, uh, Imperial, Imperial Chemical Corporation and Marconi are still in existence and in some cases posting actually reasonably sizable profits. So while Thatcher was certainly uh, very destructive for primary industries like mining uh, and for steel, uh, the actual uh, discrete uh, manufacturing economy in Britain were still quite healthy uh, during the 90s and even showed some residual growth in the 2000s. It's really uh, during the uh, Blair years and then the following Cameron years uh, after the GFC or Great Financial Crisis that we start to see this uh, much uh, more severe stagnation. That's, that's quite surprising. Yeah, that kind of flies in the face of what most people would have thought. Um, and just off, um, just broadly speaking, what What's your sense of or your take on what drove the fundamental reason behind the deindustrialization um, of the West and, and why it might have been particularly acute in, in England and or in the UK? Well, I think the UK is almost exceptional among uh, developed economies in actually buying into the notion of comparative advantage. So undeniably, China was a huge opportunity in terms of providing very good technical skills at low labor costs and having the capacity to uh, manufacture durable goods uh, for Western economies. But, you know, even the US, which did offshore a lot of its production to China in certain sectors, was still very much against like offshoring. Like for aerospace, America is incredibly protectionist. Um, they'll outsource some components of software, but in terms of uh, the uh, majority of production, there'll actually be, you know, lots of barriers to uh, doing business with China. Uh, the UK, I think, more than any other modern uh, Western developed economy, believed that if you just apply comparative advantage and focus purely on your strengths, which is ultimately being an old school uh, imperial financial center built around London, uh, I think uh, they thought uh, things would generally go okay. And I think that's why uh, the the industrialization in the UK was so much more intense than, say, in Sweden or Germany uh, or the United States. And it's funny, I think a lot of people think that offshoring in the US was, was more intense than uh, than elsewhere. I think it was sort of middling. Um, what's been, I think, remarkable over the last uh, few years has been the uh, revival and resilience of American manufacturing. And you talk about uh, the uh, influence of Silicon Valley uh, of course, most of Silicon Valley's success is attributable to these very large uh, uh, software companies 
that have very low marginal cost and don't mm. really create a lot of jobs. Facebook, uh, Instagram, um, Google, and so forth. But I think from its very onset, there were people in Silicon Valley or adjacent to Silicon Valley, like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, who were always uh, very dissatisfied with just being focused on uh, services and, you know, uh, uh, endless clickbait and actually uh, were very keen to sort of uh, invest heavily in advanced manufacturing. And so when you think about the American dynamism, it's obviously maturing a lot right now. Uh, but I think the uh, American manufacturing landscape has actually uh, weathered this phase of deindustrialization uh, remarkably well. What's interesting is that around 2008, American manufacturing in total value was considerably less than that of the cumulative uh, manufacturing GDP of the European Union, whereas I think today it's now overtaken it. Uh, so if we're to think about you know, where manufacturing capacity is increasing, absolutely in China, but the US's um, internal market has held up remarkably well. Uh, versus Europe, where I think questions of reindustrialization uh, are much more contested. Do you, um, is that intentional, like uh, in the sense that would the US have tried to achieve that? Are they trying to get most of the jobs? Because they clearly have a huge amount of influence over, you know, over Europe um, and the way that we go about things. So the, the, the kind of um, the delta there between the US's uh, kind of recent reindustrialization in Europe's to what extent is that deliberate um or to what extent is that just a question of different choices and imperatives at the at the level of, of national governments I think it's in no small part down to the US's uh significant advantages when it comes to its internal consumer market mm -hmm. so I think one thing Zihan talks about is that you know uh only about 20% of US GDP is trade, whether that's imports or exports with the rest of the world. Uh, compare that to Germany, which is about 80%. Britain, it's between 50 and 60%. Uh, China, it's about 30%. Uh, the US, uh, just, you know, I think one reason that deindustrialization perhaps didn't hit the US uh, particularly hard at the political level for so long was because it actually affected relative to the total population quite a small number of people uh it of course did have some effect in 2016 but when i think about why uh, american manufacturing uh, remains quite vibrant uh, and quite impressive i think you obviously have to look at the stimulus uh, effect of having the world's largest military as this sort of uh, high-end customer you also uh, have to consider one thing that America does have in abundance, which is cheap energy. Uh, American industrial energy prices have been uh, considerably lower than European equivalents uh, for some time now. And the uh, hydraulic fracturing revolution that really took off post-GFC really cemented that. Uh, so uh, I think that's an area where uh, America has a real competitive edge. And then I just think you have to look at agglomeration effects, uh, you know, Lots of uh, countries build their immigration systems around high talent visas uh, and attracting the world's top talent. But from a, uh, from a rational point of view, if you are one of these uh, one in a million uh, sort of high IQ uh, founders in the making, like Elon Musk or Jensen Huang, there's only one consumer market that you're really going to be looking at to build your uh, factories and industry. Uh, and it's going to be the United States uh, because that, that that's just where you get access to the biggest returns. Uh, and I think that uh, that combined with the relatively friendly environment for manufacturing um, really uh, has made American deindustrialization much less severe than people might first imagine. And when twinned with these enormous subsidies that the American government is releasing, uh, actually uh, made American reindustrialization a much more viable prospect. Has um, a couple, couple of questions. So what do you think is obviously, so you've, you've laid out some opportunities that the US has, the military, the cheap energy that it's found. 
in terms of um why it's happening and, and why now um do you does does the sort of level of uh, national debt does um the do the geopolitical tensions with china come into it um do you know from a national security perspective um do is this all sort of gfc um kind of fallout that that sort of uh, sparked a search for a new you know for, for new economic models how would you describe if there were an inflection point which put you know america and by extension sort of the you know the west on the path to more uh, more reindustrialization uh, what would you say it was or is so it's it's an interesting point. I, I think undoubtedly, the rise of China, uh, almost in hindsight, it seems inevitable, uh, was going to cause this reaction. I think the fact that uh, China started doing well beyond the very limited parameters that the US had set out for it during the 1990s and 2000s uh, really uh, irked uh, American uh, economic and financial elites. You know. We often think of the U.S. turn towards China as the election of Donald Trump. Um, but actually, I think if you look at some of the uh, literature that was coming from uh, Hillary Clinton's circle uh, prior to the sort of uh, 2016 election, uh, a lot of the same things are being said. So I think even during the late stages of the Obama administration, uh, there had been a realization that uh, the uh, economic order and partnership that the U.S. had with China was now uh, seriously uh, allowing China to uh, gain too much traction versus the U.S. in key areas like high-tech manufacturing uh, and technology and innovation and so forth. I think the fact that, you know, you look at, say, U.S. Uh, restrictions on Chinese companies, I mean, what, what's ultimately driving them? They've put very severe restrictions on Huawei to the point where they're ripping out Huawei hardware at the local state level in the US. So very little uh, Huawei network infrastructure in, in the US uh, and then pushing other countries to do the same. They have uh, increasingly, I think, sought to place restrictions on DJI, which is the main uh, Chinese commercial drone maker and is also the main uh, drone provider for uh, all American users of drones. Uh, what's ultimately uh, directing this? There are arguments that these companies work with the Chinese military or Chinese police and the Chinese government. Of course, they do. They're Chinese companies that work with dual-use technology. They're always going to work with the Chinese government. I don't think that was considered a problem you know, prior to 2016 uh, or to know uh, the great financial crisis i think the fact that you know maybe they work for the chinese government is really being used as a pretext to just uh place restrictions on them because they're successful chinese companies doing well and their success is an indication that china can compete with the us on virtually uh any technology front uh and i think that ultimately reindustrialization and concerns about uh, manufacturing competitiveness versus China uh, is built from uh, a wider sense of uh, urgency owing to China's success and uh, how well it's done. And so I, I think that is the catalyst for for all this uh, uh, for all this additional funding. I think mm -hmm. you know you you could argue that uh, this is like uh, a geostrategic uh, reason. But of course, there are lots of uh, special interests that will be, you know, seeking, you know, subsidies and funds for this factory or that and simply using the China question uh, as a pretext. Mm. Right. So uh, that will be happening at the corporate level and the state level. I mean, you know, Tim Cook spent most of the 1990s and 2000s uh, offshoring, you know, production of the iPhone uh, to Shenzhen and China working with uh, people like Terry Gu, uh, you know, the head of Foxconn, or working with, you know, Morris Chang, and working with lots of uh, Chinese government officials, uh, signing deals with the Chinese government to make sure production was sort of heavily uh, focused on China. And now he's uh, essentially using his influence to try and get someone like Morris Chang to put a TSMC factory in the United States. Mm. So uh, very often the same people 
who promoted and championed offshoring are now also championing uh, internal subsidies and uh, mm. uh, domestic industrial policy. That's very interesting. In, in a weird, yeah, in a weird way, you could argue that you know, I think during the early early Trump years, there was this sort of residual, very small movement of industrial policy minded conservatives that sort of localized around publications like American Affairs and did actually develop some sort of uh, fairly fairly high quality uh, policy prescriptions for American industry. And you could argue that to some extent they did get their ideas popularized by Democrats, um, but they were never able to uh, get them implemented in the Republican Party uh, because uh, for you know, a wide array of reasons. The Republican Party is just not interested in industrial policy. Um, so in a weird way, uh, lots of uh, sort of Trump-adjacent industrial policy has now basically manifested with the Biden administration. I think it's noteworthy that almost none of the trade restrictions that were implemented by Trump have been taken uh, away or mm. got gotten rid of by Joe Biden. There's been an amazing continuity between the two administrations. It's also something, yeah, it's also something that would um, perhaps not be widely acknowledged, right? There's sort of a, a standard frame of, um, you know, Democrats are the the other party of, um, I guess, Wall Street and global finance and the Republicans are, you know, more kind of um, sympathetic with, you know, with the with old US industry and, and the rest of it. So that, that's very interesting to hear. In terms of the scale of um, the outlook for, for the next decades or so, how, how complete do you, what yeah just perhaps you can slap some numbers on it but just in terms of what to expect how how much to what degree is um are we going to see industry come back on shore uh, and you, again you can sort of talk give a, a broader broad perspective across um the us europe and and the uk well no it's, it's a good question i think the united states assuming it doesn't uh, sabotage itself too much with uh, changes to its energy grid by becoming too reliant on uh, intermittent renewables without building sufficient uh, baseload power in the form of uh, nuclear or natural gas, uh, will be able to reshore a great deal uh, of its industry. I think it clearly uh, has the uh, innovative capacity. I think that the US has been, it's not automated to a great deal uh, so far. But there's a lot of room to grow there. And in terms of the actual, uh, you know, uh, first times in the robotics industry, uh, the U.S. is still, you know, the sort of epic center of sort of that uh, high end development. And I think the general prospects for U.S. industry uh, will be reasonably good. I think for, for Europe and for those countries that have sort of built their economies around the United States, Outside of China, I think their uh, futures are actually uh, much more questionable. In fact, American reindustrialization might come at the cost of uh, reindustrialization or industrial growth within those jurisdictions, right? Uh, the EU, for instance, has been sort of very concerned about the effect of the Inflation Reduction Act, this very large uh, release of U.S. capital uh, in the form of subsidies for U.S. industry mm. on their own. Uh, industry. And I think this can perhaps best be seen in the uh, mainstay of the German industrial economy, which is the automotive sector, uh, or more specifically, the internal combustion engine. Uh, you know, uh, almost all of German uh, car industry is directed not to electric cars, but to the internal combustion engine. And internal combustion engines have sometimes 10 times the number of components that an electric vehicle will have, right? And it has very complicated supply chain with thousands of companies all supplying these big companies like Volkswagen. And this has all remained fairly contained within Germany. But if those markets uh, become secondary to the electric vehicle market, which ultimately is dictated by refining capacity and software development, then Germany stands to uh, become a laggard in an industry in which it was once a world leader. And so I think that while 
uh, reindustrialization in the U.S. is uh, very promising, and further industrial development in China is a given. I think in Europe and perhaps to a lesser extent in Japan and Korea and Singapore, and also Taiwan, uh, their industrial specialization could actually uh, could be very problematic over the next fifty years or so. So, is there is there sort of is there a sense that it's zero sum? Um, this this positive. Clearly, the industries are in a position to grow, but is there a sense that it's zero sum in the sense that there's this, there's this, these, this large bulk of manufacturing of current economic industrial activity that is, um, you know, that needs to be brought back, and therefore it's either going to be brought back to the US or it's going to be brought back to Europe, and so the more that goes to the US, um, the the less there is, um, you know, all things being equal to go to to other parts of um, of the West. Well, well, exactly, and uh, you know, a, a large term used by American policymakers is friendshoring, right? So it's not all about reshoring your goods like to the United States. It's about friendshoring so that some manufacturing is in Singapore, some is in Korea, some is in Taiwan, uh, some is in Europe. Now, this is very similar to what the U.S. did on the onset of the Cold War, right? Uh, it was very good to have manufacturing in those countries because it bound them to you. Right? They had access to the U.S. consumer market, which is the biggest market going. And uh, in the return, the U.S. gains political and economic leverage over these countries. And I'm sure there's plenty of people in Washington thinking, right, how much manufacturing can we divvy up and uh, provide to Europe? How much can go to India? What's mm. the optimal amount that will stay in Taiwan? Uh, but at the same time, you know, all these countries had their own ideas about how much industry should be allocated to them, right? And I think unde undeniably, if you're Europe or a German uh, uh, automotive industry veteran, you're looking at uh, Tesla or the shift to EVs, and you're looking at the enormous subsidies that are going to American car makers, and uh, frankly, uh, you're possibly terrified right you you mm. you germany despite its success has already been you know seeing declining uh revenue growth for its manufacturing sector for a good five years now and this is all being accelerated by europe's own position on energy which is deteriorating uh year by year mm. so i i think you know th there will be attempts to make all the us's sort of adjacent uh allies quite happy uh while reindustrializing the us but i think finding that balance will prove very difficult especially as these countries are becoming uncompetitive in manufacturing for many other reasons as well yeah we'll get on to um, we'll get on to the kind of doing more of a deep dive into the uk i think first because in terms of framing that it would also help talking a little bit about the direction that um that industry is going to go. So obviously you do, you look a lot into AI and robotics and presumably in the way that AI is going to revolutionize software, um, AI and, and, and robotics and some combination thereof is going to, going to sort of change the way that industry happens. You've spoken a lot about automation in, in industry. So I suppose to kind of set the frame first, like how, 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 how can we expect um, industry to change and to look different to what it has in the past? Um, and then, you know, we'll get on to talking about, um, what that can help us see about the UK's UK's prospects. So, uh, first, yeah, just talk a little bit about how industry is changing with robotics and, and the rest of, of these new technologies. Yeah, sure. So I think, yeah, looking at uh, manufacturing, you know, certain industries have become highly automated uh, already, and they've been the largest customers for industrial robotics ever since the industry really took off uh, from the 1960s onwards. Uh, the first industrial robots were really uh, built with the uh, you know, support and uh, blessing of companies like General Motors and so forth. And they were scaled up by uh, Japanese and German uh, automotive players. Generally, at the beginning, these automotive vendors were the only companies that had the capital and long-term horizons to really invest in and experiment with, you know, highly automated production lines. Uh, that then expanded to the electronics industry. Uh, the electronics industry perhaps automated at a slower rate than the automotive sector, 
just because the cost of labor was so much lower. But even in, say, Foxconn factories now, Foxconn is this very large electronics contract manufacturer that's famous for having factories with hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, but even they now have their own robotics division, right? And they are deploying them uh, on their production sites. So the majority of demand for industrial robots and automation in manufacturing is in fact located in the automotive uh, and electronics. Right? And there's also some uh, demand in the primary metals and uh, uh, refining industries. But there's still a huge amount to automate outside of that. Uh, I think you know a lot of people think that you have lights out factories, um, but that's really at this point not the case. Uh, there's lots of ways in which people are trying to make uh, manufacturing considerably easier to deploy, because at the moment it's a very capital intensive uh, thing to buy an industrial robot and actually integrate that. There's a whole industry of resellers and systems integrators who somehow turn these massive machines into working solutions that actually do promise uh, to uh, make a, a process more efficient. Uh, but I think, you know, looking forward, before you think about uh, job losses on factory floors, I actually think there's still a lot more automation, uh, even in uh, factories and logistics centers to go. Funny enough, uh, a lot of people, you know, think that robots means less jobs. But generally, what's been found when you've done sort of economic studies is that the companies where manufacturing jobs are lost are those companies that didn't automate and got outcompeted by those countries that did deploy robots. That's very right? interesting. And, yeah. and that, that applies at the company level, uh, and it also applies at the country level. So you think about which country, which developed country deindustrialized and lost the most manufacturing production and the largest share of workers to uh, industry during the China shock from 2000 to 2010? Uh, the answer is the UK. And uh, which country is currently the least automated uh, in its industry? Uh, the UK as well. So actually, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the countries that generally are technological laggards that just get outcompeted uh, by these much more productive firms. And uh, you know, I think... You know, outside of industry, you have Amazon, which is sort of quietly automating the entirety of the logistics supply chain. Uh, Amazon now has uh, well over 500,000 robots working for it, which is, you know, quite something when you consider like it really only began deploying them in 2012, uh, you know, essentially becoming more than a quarter of their entire workforce uh, uh, being automated is, is quite something. And Amazon also makes considerable acquisitions and lots of investments uh, in the robotic space. I think what, one thing that is true in robotics is that companies that uh, are invested in space are still relatively small. It has a lot of consolidating to do. And it will be interesting to see which companies really take that opportunity. Because at the moment, the industry is probably under 100 billion worldwide. But has the potential to, you know, become a trillion dollars in value over the next ten or twenty years, and lots of major companies, including Amazon, including Google, are investing in their own way to, you know, take a chunk of this opportunity. But interestingly, some aren't doing very well at it. And um, there's actually a very interesting uh, LinkedIn. Uh, article that i saw i know like uh, an interesting linkedin article. i know it that, sounds like that's a surprise yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a surprise in itself uh but uh actually it was of google's robotics division auctioning off about a hundred robots that they just like kept in service and didn't really have anything to do with so if you're in the silicon valley area there's about a hundred robots to be auctioned off by google at this point um so which company really buys this opportunity I think will be interesting. And I think the opportunity really is there because, you know, you might have remembered Andrew Yang, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was yeah, talked yeah, about so, UBI a lot and was bigging up that because well, he was well, concerned. His was, yeah. Well, his premise was that everyone was going to be made redundant um, by robotics. Um, and I think that actually the conversation is veering the other way. 
Um, when you consider the fertility crisis and the just to enormous drop in, in total fertility rates across the West um, and East Asia, um, you might have to actually think, well, is automation really going to be good enough um, to deal with this, this incredibly old and frail population? Um, so the, the race against time might not be how do we build a benefit system that can deal with all these redundant people, but actually uh, how do we you know, solve these technical problems to actually look after you know, this uh, increasingly sort of a frail uh, uh, workforce. In, t in terms of just increasing the productive capacity rather than thinking about um, sort of, yeah, managing managing deadwood. Well, well exa exactly, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I think it's a genuine question as to whether, you know, countries can automate uh, their industry and their services to deal with just how many old people they're going to have over the next 20 or 30 years or so. You know, Japan has obviously tried this more than most countries, uh, but even Japan now, uh, it does have a much more conservative uh, immigration regime than Europe or the United States does, but it's still uh, allowing a lot of people from South and East Asia uh, to come in on temporary visas to do uh, care work, or you know, very basic retail work, because actually the robotics that would be ideal for doing this uh, just break down too easily. There are just too many edge cases for these things to be deployed at scale. Um, so I think the I think the uh, urgency of automation is actually you know much more serious than how people like Andrew Yang perceived it. You know, about five years ago, where the idea was that it was all going to happen of its own volition and mm. the only question was how do we do Managing the negative it. effects of it yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. um that's, yeah that's very interesting i mean personally i'm not sold on the the doomerism around ai um the, the sort of this time it's different this time you know this time it's different this time we really are gonna see huge amounts of um of job losses but um i think it's been quite almost quite ideological um i don't you know i don't sit too far on one side or the other but i, I am starting to call to call that into question um and definitely given given the energy um the sort of energy needs there's a big imperative for for needing it you know for needing to to really focus on productivity um now good yeah so perhaps we can yeah we can switch gears i mean in, ter in terms of this um the robotics you mentioned a little bit about um kind of who's who's been involved but which which parts of the world are doing well in terms of this next wave of of industry um, and then we can we can roll into talking about the UK, um, but where where who's who's leading this charge? Hmm. Yeah, good question. So there's there's a separation here. I think you've got to talk about deployment uh, uh, of robots, and then look at like where the actual innovation is happening. So South Korea, Singapore, Japan, Germany, these are all markets where. Uh, you have a large number of robotics companies, but where they really excel is just deploying this. Uh, South Korea and Singapore don't necessarily have great robotics companies of their own, or at least not a very high number, um, but they deploy them at very quick scale. So they have a lot of very high quality systems integrators and a very technified workforce that can really bring these systems online and actually start doing work uh, at a high level. I think if you're looking at robotics as a whole, and not just looking at the industrial side. I think the United States uh, at the moment does have kind of a, an unparalleled edge. I think if you look at the uh, use of mobile robots, uh, at least for industrial inspection, if you look at robots used in agriculture, if you look at, uh, well, the, maybe the, uh, the overhyped market that is autonomous cars, uh, a lot of that initial research and development is being done in the United States. And in terms of the very best roboticists, uh, a very large proportion of them are still American at American universities like uh, MIT, Carnegie Mellon uh, and uh, and Stanford. So I, I, I think the United States does retain a very strong position in the robotic space. I think, you know, my general view with um, American uh, technology is that the US has an unparalleled advantage when it comes to those first movers. but actually translating that into the best companies there's a gap there 
the US is uh, far more limited in actually uh, you know, developing strong uh, industrial players than it is in generating ideas. It's still good at it, but I think there's a gap there. Uh, and I think that's where you have to bring China into the conversation. Uh, China now has, I think, it's now regularly shipping more robots than the rest of the world combined. Uh, in terms of uh, deployment, it's uh, way more intense than countries like the UK. And the government is pouring so much money into it that I think that more than any other economy, they perceive aging as like this existential problem where automation can be the solution. Mm. And this is being done by these very powerful local governments like in Shenzhen um, and also dictated at the national level. Uh, and it's not merely that they're importing lots of uh, foreign products. I think if you look at the uh, numbers, about 50% or maybe 40% of the industrial robots that China is deploying are of their own uh, companies, while about 60% are imported uh, from Western companies like or Japanese companies. But then in other sectors that relate to robotics, like drones, one Chinese company, DJI, uh, probably has about 70% of the entire airframe market. So, you know, British police services are entirely dependent on Chinese drones uh, for cheap aerial surveillance. And if these Chinese drones were to be banned tomorrow, there would be no uh, drone uh, on the market that's non-Chinese, uh, which could replace it without uh, adding another uh, 10 to 20,000 pounds in cost. So in some areas, I think the, uh, the, the Chinese market is actually very promising. What's interesting, I think, is, uh, you know, robotics could cover a, a very broad range of technologies. Uh, another sort of subset of that is additive manufacturing or 3D printing. Some of these 3D printers are very large, but some of them are like small and can be sort of placed on a desktop. Uh, and one company called Bamboo Labs, funnily enough, which is actually set up by people who used to work at DGI, the very uh, successful Chinese drone company, uh, have now uh, essentially tried to disrupt that space as well. So I think China, in terms of its reputation for being a copycat, is not being given its due uh, sort of uh, respect. Mm. I think that plenty of Chinese companies now are doing things in the market in terms of bringing cheap, high-quality goods that uh, people haven't seen before. And I, I would expect that over the next 10, 20 years, uh, that will be uh, more the case. Uh, I think the uh, the Chinese robotics industry uh, will, will increasingly be seen as a peer uh, to the United States and may even surpass it. Yeah, that's, um, that's a different... Yeah, because that, that, it's an interesting point, that one reflecting on that because you know we've spoken about the sort of zero-sum nature of manufacturing in the past and um, looking at how you know we just offshored it to China but the you know the sense of like how the how the broad puzzles how, how the broad pies are going to change going forward right in terms of the extent to which China are going to be able to actually just kind of gobble up more of the global um, of, of the next wave of economic growth that you know that will surely have some some pretty big implications of of, on, you know, on the future of Western, when it's in Western industry. So that's super interesting stuff. So talking about the UK now, so, um, you know, I find some of this stuff um, kind of if, to the extent that you, that we attribute the, the political troubles of the last few years to kind of over globalization, to neoliberalism, to stretching our societies um, kind of too far to dispossessing, you know, large, you know, large blocks of the indigenous working class um, to the extent that that is, has been a big factor in, in causing this instability. You might you might look at the reindustrialization and say, you know, it might be a good thing, right? There might be there might be there might be room to kind of push, re, you know, reemploy um, and repossess and kind of push a bit more of like a, a national a nationalist sentiment, right? Rather than rather than it being so profitable just to make us um, make us think completely globally minded. Now, I don't want to get too much into sort of predictions around that because it's really hard to know how these things pan out. But certainly the scope for being for being optimistic about this, for saying that, you know, we might have have more kind of stable, um, stable national economies, stable, you know, stable societies at the national level. Um, 
That said, even if that were to be the case, um, begs the question of, of how much the UK stands to stands to benefit. So in terms of the, re, you've, you've touched a little bit on the UK's reindustrialization. in terms of the, the, the outlook for the UK. So where it's, where it's kind of been, how, how kind of assertive it's been up to now in reindustrializing and its prospects for, for kind of getting more, uh, a bigger piece of the pie going forward and maybe even perhaps leading some of these, um, these new industries. Uh, what's your, what's your assessment based on some of the reading I've done of your writing? We, we shouldn't be too too hopeful. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm not even sure reindustrialization is is really understood at the institutional level of the UK, right? I, I mean, I, I think at least in the United States, I think there's an acceptance that some of the economic consensus was sort of desperately wrong or misguided, right? In the UK, I don't think there's been any real sort of uh, stock taking or acknowledgement of that. Concerning. And, well, I think, you know, I think you can look at it. Uh, I'll say that it's the, um, the Green Industrial Revolution, right, which is sort of closest thing that this country has sort of to an industrial strategy at this point. Uh, it's sort of laid out in a 10-point plan that was uh, set up during the sort of Boris Johnson uh, premiership. And it's completely speculative, provides no uh, sort of uh, clear levels of funding. Uh, the actual funding amounts that did get allocated were very limited and is essentially just a smorgasbord of different technologies that it might be nice to have um, someday. Um Meanwhile, the government never even uh, published uh, a semiconductor policy, which was long overdue. Uh, I think you know, industrialization. Just on that, so is there is, so yeah, to the extent that there there is a strategy, has it kind of thinking been like, oh, we can the UK can be nimble, we can be agile um, post Brexit, and rather than bother with all the reindustrialization and, and uh, let that let that kind of happen in the US and other parts, we can just leapfrog all that and just get cracking with with green energy. Is that has that been a, the sort of narrative that's been that's been playing out at the well, at the high you know yeah, the that's a, that's level? An, well, that's an interesting point. Yeah, so I think you know, funny enough, I think when when Boris uh, came in. I think he and, and Liz Truss after him definitely implied that the world was becoming more protectionist and this was a great opportunity for the UK to be more of a free trade outlier and you know uh, reduce barriers to entry while also uh, being a world leader in decarbonisation uh, and green energy. Of course uh, you, you, you offloaded a load of jargon there and really like that worldview was really sort of together with lots of jargon and wasn't very well thought through. So when we think about you know the green industrial revolution, if we actually look at the companies that you know make wind turbines or make solar voltaic panels, how many of them are British? Right, a very small number of them are European. Almost the entire solar voltaic uh, supply chain is supplied by China. So uh, then factoring in more speculative technologies like hydrogen or carbon capture, it, th these are at such a nascent stage of development, you know, talking about them didn't really mean anything. I don't think there was a great deal of thinking about, you know, reindustrialization at all, it, it, which, which might sound counterintuitive because, you know, governments and parties talk a lot about deindustrialization in the UK and how bad it was, right? Some people, you know, maybe uh, at the Institute for Government have argued that we focus too much on manufacturing. We talk about it too much and we don't focus on what Britain is actually good at, which is financial services and associated services and digital and culture and so forth. And the example they, the example they use is, uh, you know, lots of politicians go to factories and uh, you know put on hard hats and high-vis jackets and they never do that uh, in financial centers right george osborne i don't think ever went to you know the the ey you know building yeah. or he never went <laughs> to the front desks of you know goldman sachs or so forth 
but he went to you know steel factories a lot and he put on his high his mm. jacket and he put on his hard hat yeah, and, you know yeah. looked very dynamic and so forth and what i would say to that is that well yeah british politicians probably spend their time walking around factories more than chinese officials do mm. but they're not more interested in in manufacturing or engineering um mm. this is sort of this is political communications you know as i think you know people like cummings have talked about a, a huge amount of what passes for policy creation in the in the uk is essentially built around media cycles and not really built around like long-term economic strategy yes yeah, so there's uh, a sense there's a sense in that the fact they are spending so much time there's you know that clearly implies that they get it they get the political importance and the political relevance so it is interesting like you say that that's just not at all reflected in any serious um serious thinking or, or planning around it or, or even funding and financing well it might it might be worth like uh talking about uh the recent supercharger scheme you heard of the, the supercharger scheme right so this was announced by uh kemi bader not um from bays or the department which which used to be bays i don't know i don't keep track of that but essentially it's a series of deductions um on taxes levied for big uh, energy users that go to renewables um, mainly coming from the emissions trading scheme now the supercharger scheme was basically used to kind of reinforce another scheme which was designed to reduce costs and provide exemptions on taxes that big energy energy users would pay for you know climate funding and so forth now if that sounds a bit convoluted it it is because what you essentially have is one scheme designed to reinforce another scheme that's supposed to deal with the negative effects of uh, another scheme the emissions trading scheme so you know you, you almost have this fissile uh, chain reaction where different policies get crafted to deal with the ne negative externalities of another but none of them are even remotely related to solving the underlying problems that yeah. cause industry to be uncompetitive uh, and i think this just applies to so much british industry uh and i i think it th that policy creation and that level of sort of confusion applies regardless of whether you're run by the conservatives or labor uh i i think that that it's it's more an institutional problem uh at the level of the civil service and also the lack of uh coordination between the civil service and productive capitalists who should be the main stakeholders of British industry. Do you, uh, so it's so yeah, so it's not particularly good at the government level, the, the level of the, um, the civil service. Are there any sort of um, leading lights, any individuals, any companies um, who, you know, with, with, with gravitas or, you know, ideally with, with a good amount of gravitas, but are there any kind of people that who are, in, who are very impressive and, and at the forefront of this stuff and, and might have influence who are, whether it's companies or individuals, is it like are there any, yeah? Is there anywhere we can look to for for inspiration to and to sort of get behind if if we think this is important for our economic future? Well, of, of course, yeah. There there could be more than half a dozen. I think if you want to look at uh, exceptional British individuals related to technology or to science, which obviously feeds into technology, the uh, examples are, are pretty pretty large mm. uh you know whether it's uh stephen wolfram martin reese uh roger penrose you know we have a lot of good mathematicians and physicists uh we have a very strong presence in the ai research space jeffrey hinton uh sort of considered by some to be you know the godfather of neural networks and deep learning is one of the chief researchers for facebook which is one of the largest spenders on ai uh, you have Demis Hasibis uh, and the chaps at DeepMind who do a lot of interesting stuff uh, and obviously work for Google. And then at the level of the productive capitalists, you have Jim Ratcliffe and James Dyson. Uh, but what we're finding with all these people, right, is that they're either localized within universities uh, and very often uh, connected to sort of you know, global operations and are ultimately, you know, transnational in nature, right? So, you know, uh, Dyson 
moved its manufacturing from the UK to Malaysia in 2002, Ineos, despite being a very expansive chemical industries uh, provider, probably has about a thousand jobs in the UK and is ultimately a distributed set of companies rather than you know a British industrial champion in the way that you know BASF is a German chemical company, right? They so, haven't shown they haven't shown any signs of wanting to make concessions. Let's say for for the good of like a, you know from a protectionist or from the good of a you know national eco- economic standpoint. It's more they haven't kind of shown that sort of leaning. In, in, and would you, and if, well, if they haven't if they haven't, would you say that other you know there are examples like in the US it is more it is more politically minded or is it just um, kind of raw calculus about what they think is best for for profit well to be more charitable to, to them they probably don't envisage the british government being a viable partner for you know yeah. some sort of industrial renaissance and mm. they'd have a lot of evidence to back them up on that right yeah um, fair enough you could certainly mm. you know argue that they bear some responsibility as you know members of the uk's quite small uh, productive capitalist class who invest in this country uh, to a higher degree than they do the global markets uh, but and certain countries like Germany or Japan or, or even in certain instances the US do have those sorts of partnerships uh, but I, I think that in the UK it's something that has to be very well thought through and is very dependent on central government bureaucracy local government bureaucracy and strong executive leadership before you can really convince this quite small community of people um, uh, to invest and then just talking about, you know, Demis Sibis and uh, Jeffrey Hinton, you know, this is, you know, some of the best, you know, you know, UK based like talent on artificial intelligence and the great technologies of the day. And ultimately, who are their clients? Uh, American technology firms, right? Because, you know, they're the best partners for that. So. I don't think Britain is lacking in live players or, you know, great individuals uh, doing very interesting things. But in general, they're transnational in their work. Mm. And that, 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 that's, that's a very serious uh, challenge to any kind of industrial renaissance that is really fixated on the UK. You know, I, I might even, you know, talk about ARIA, which is the, uh, you know, UK copy of, of the original DARPA which was sort of a very uh, sort of promising program, you know, developed by Cummings. But if you look at its staffing and what its marketing is and how its objectives are being defined, uh, it's not being defined as the original DARPA was, as a sort of national security-focused research organization where you basically give money to mad scientists to try and build something that will you know, teach the Soviets a lesson. It's basically designed to, you know, provide a big playground for building technologies that will be good for Britain and, of course, the world, right? So I think, and and also you've got to remember uh, the institutional actors that got ARIA through the door are, broadly speaking, no longer in the government. And five years down the line, it will be very likely that its mission will have been realigned with uh, you know, what the civil service wants or what the treasury mm. wants. And uh, I, I think it will be very hard for them to sort of maintain a degree of independence from you know, bureaucratic pressure. Mm. So I, I, I think that's another thing to be mindful of. Yeah, it's a good way to think about it rather than sort of hoping for, if you're hoping for some of this new industry, some of our leaders to, our industrial capitalist leaders to, to sort of privilege the UK, the UK market, UK employment and the rest of it, you know, rather than sort of hoping for some, some sort of residual nationalist sentiment in them, in them, you know, in, in, when, in many ways, it's, it's more reasonable just to look at the government and, expect, and hope that they might change incentives to make it much more advantageous to set up here. Um, so, um, so that's, it's a good way to think about it. And with that in mind, um, you know, I can't help thinking that this is all just um, the lack of desire, just is all kind of um, I mean, what's the funding situation? Because to me, the, the, the elephant in the room is is the city of London and the way that we still haven't kind of come to terms with our 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 decline as a as a great power. 
um, and we're still sort of clinging on to the city of London's global relevance in order to sort of massage our egos. But actually, we, we're not making the, the tougher decisions that need to be made just to kind of cut that off and actually look a bit longer term about kind of re, um, you know, doing the things that made us good in the good in the first place, which was thinking in terms of nurturing industry. Um, do you have a set? I mean, you might not be able to kind of frame this in the context of the city of London's specific interests and their, and their tendrils, but does the kind of level of funding um, made available for it? Does it point in that direction? What and I guess in a broader sense of what's your take on why? why things are the way they are and why there's this lack of interest in, in seizing these opportunities and we're coming close to to the end of our time so yeah we can we can perhaps wrap up with with this one yeah well i understand we're, we're pushing time it's a very expansive question i think the city of london need not necessarily be sort of antithetical to reindustrialization in the uk there was a time when these institutions must have been at least somewhat synergistic right uh i think that City of London, undoubtedly, and the simplicity of the UK economy, the fact that it's not particularly diversified and is tilted around finance, uh, is a problem for manufacturing. And if you look at capital investment in the UK, it's at shockingly low levels compared to sort of any developed country. I think the issue is that uh, even as the City of London does have these distortive effects on the wider economy, it's also the thing holding you know plugging the gap essentially um, we're ultimately living way beyond our means yeah. and the only thing holding that up is this great sort of machine that sort of uh, lets foreigners like sort of pour money in to keep the uk economy somehow afloat yeah. um, if that was to go then you'd have a serious problem i think that perhaps the fall of this trust was an indication of just how fragile that system actually is if you want to look at the health of the city of london it's worth looking at the book to market price ratio of British banks, as in what the book price mm, of their accounts say they're worth versus what the markets say they're worth. And increasingly, it's becoming clear that the market is valuing loans by British banks at a much lower rate, sometimes less than half what their book value is. Now, this essentially makes it very difficult to invest further, and it makes it very hard to stop. Uh, loans to what are essentially, you know, dead assets. Uh, it's very possible that, you know, the City of London will see its position severely deteriorate over the next five to ten years. Uh, you know, obviously the Russia sanctions, you know, Britain was a great butler to, you know, this or that oligarch from Russia or the United Arab Emirates. If London is no longer fulfilling that role, then there are many other metrics in which you know city of london is not a great uh, financial city center you know the fact that arm the uk's most important strategic technology company decided to list wholly uh, on the us stock exchange and spurn uh, the london stock exchange even after you know millions in lobbying it's kind of not a really good vote of confidence in the city itself uh, yeah. and were the city of london to uh, falter significantly. I think you'd see a very serious drop in living standards in the UK. But perhaps, you know, the sort of silver lining of that is that you'd have all these incredibly talented people uh, from the city of London suddenly sort of forced out uh, onto the street and maybe then they can be uh, reapplied to different tasks uh, to create a more diversified uh, and, and uh, uh, secure economy. Uh, going forward yeah i mean that's um you know sometimes we overcomplicate things and sometimes the question is quite simple it's like what is your top talent doing you know the best you know who you know, the best people that your country produces how what's that how, how are those iq points being spent and devoted right and if it's just been done in terms of financial engineering then it's no surprise that you know that you, you get the outcomes that you do um so it's interesting to reflect on that and there are different there are kind of different data points suggesting that the city of London um, is, uh, has kind of peaked, right? Um, in terms of there's a general shift towards onshore finance as well. Um, so some of these offshore markets are being reined in. Um, there is, um, you know, there is talk about similar um, 
kind of a similar shift to what happened after after World War II, where there was you know redu reduction in capital controls, and it's really the sort of offshore market which enabled the city of London to flourish. So, like you said, if that is true, there might be a short term cost, but perhaps there's um, if that is changing the sort of um, changing the competitive advantage um, of different kinds of industries that different industries have, and the rel relative um, kind of if we you know if our if our leaders are just thinking purely in terms of how to help the country, if that's changing the, the calculus around that, you know, allowing for a bit of short term pain, perhaps, you know, perhaps there is hope um, for, for our industry. Um, so I will, yeah, perhaps we should, yeah, we should leave it there. Um, any concluding thoughts or would you like to point people, uh, you, you, you dropped your, your substack at the beginning, Dr. Sign, but any concluding thoughts or anything you want to point people in and any particular thing you've written that you might, uh, you think might interest people? Um, just let us know. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would uh, definitely recommend Dr. Sin. Uh, I'm trying to write on it more, uh, especially sort of as there seems to be some sort of immediate interest in the uh, topics that I'm talking about. Uh, I can definitely recommend uh, my full-time uh, job. Uh, people should always check out Bismarck Analysis. Uh, it is generally a pay-to-view, but uh, I would recommend, of course, that... Uh, anyone with the resources should uh, subscribe to the Bismarck Brief. Uh, we put out a report uh, every week. So for, you know, a certain amount of money, you get 52 uh, very high quality reports every year, uh, as well as uh, some access to analysts. Uh, I would also recommend Palladium, uh, which is like a very interesting uh, sort of uh, magazine in America, which uh, certainly got me initially interested into a lot of these questions of, you know, how to revive industrial society. Uh, are there any other like recommendations I could add? Um, I think if I was to recommend like one sort of other substack, I think um, Asianometry is is very interesting. I think uh, if you want a good sort of technical understanding for lots of niche industries, I think that's a very good channel. Uh, perfect. Um, well, yeah, I'll put all those links in the description. And yeah, thank you very much for your time, Rian. This this was great, and it's um, definitely something that I, I I want to develop a much more thorough understanding. So I'll be I'll be reading reading Doctor Sign closely. So I look forward to seeing seeing what else you come out with. And um, you've already had some great stuff come out over the last few months. So yeah, thanks again for coming on. This was great. Excellent. All right, take care, Seb. It's been a pleasure.